0: Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. While you're finding your way there, I want to tease a couple of big announcements that we're going to be making later this week. Lord willing, in just a few days, we're going to be able to share with you our plans for reopening our campuses. We've been working hard on this, and we're currently uh, kind of putting the final touches on the plan. And then we'll hope to share that with you on Wednesday. Along with that, we're also going to unveil a couple of pretty significant initiatives that the pandemic and your response to it have enabled us to move forward with. Quite honestly, these are things that uh, we've been praying about and, and thinking about and working on for years And we really uh, were going to wait a while longer before we actually took them on. Uh, But given uh, the current circumstances that we're in, as well as your incredible generosity over the last eight weeks, we really believe that the Lord is uh, just telling us to, to move forward with these big initiatives right now. Our executive elder team has been meeting pretty much every week during this pandemic. And and as we have and we've considered and we've prayed and we've looked at the situation and what God would have us to do in response, we believe he's made it crystal clear that it's really full steam ahead. I'm really looking forward to sharing these initiatives with you. And so you might kind of think of Wednesday as like a press conference, However, hopefully it won't be like a bunch of the press conferences that our politicians are given these days where they really just come before the cameras and they say, hey, we're going to announce that we're going to get back to you later with another big announcement. Now, maybe that's kind of what this announcement is right now, but I promise that won't be the case on Wednesday. So tune in social media uh, to our website for a video. And I'm really looking forward to sharing all of this with you. Now, before we get to the message, I want to take a moment uh, this morning to to pray. And particularly, I want to pray um, in regards to a dear a member and a dear brother uh, of our church that we lost this week. Many of you, particularly at the Danville campus, know Roy Milligan. He's been a part of Harmony Bible Church for years and years and years. In fact, uh, if you live in Burlington, you probably maybe are familiar with the... Uh, Roy as well, particularly if you uh, go uh, at any time to the high V on Agency Street, is he? He was there pretty much every day. You may not know though that Roy uh, was deaf; um, he was deaf his entire life. Um, and yet, you know what? God still worked in and through this man in an incredible way. Roy loved Jesus, and so while today um, we really are, are sorrowful over the loss of Roy, we're also rejoicing that Roy is with Jesus and as. One person uh, put it, Roy is hearing for the first time in his life, and you know what? The first voice that he heard in his entire life was the voice of Jesus, and how special must that be for him right now? So will you pray with me as we thank the Lord for Roy, and we also pray for comfort during this time? Father, we come to you today. We thank you that as believers that while we grieve like uh, everyone else does over loss, and particularly over death, we, we don't grieve without hope. We have great hope because what we just sang about, Jesus overcame the grave. Jesus is alive. And because he is, so too are we. And so too are we forever. We thank you that is particularly true for Roy right now and that he has entered into the joy of the Jesus that he loved. And we thank you so much for Roy's life. We thank you for the opportunity that we had to to know him and to minister with him. And I thank you for the people who particularly cared for him and for those who were particularly close to him. I pray that you will give them comfort and give them grace and give them strength. Lord, I know that um, there are lots of others uh, who are suffering and are going through incredibly difficult times. Lots of us have loved, lost loved ones during this time. So we want to pray for comfort, and we want to pray for grace, and we want to pray for strength. And We pray, Lord, that we would find that today in your word. And So please, Lord, give us your Holy Spirit. May he speak to us through your precious word today. It's in your son's mighty name we pray. Amen. All right. Today, uh, we're going to pick right back up where we left off last Sunday in Acts 4. So let me quickly review what Luke tells us in the first 22 verses of the chapter. After they've healed a crippled man and used that as an opportunity to preach the gospel, Peter and John are arrested by the Jewish religious leaders and they're thrown into prison overnight. The next day then they're brought out and put on trial during which time they once again boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus. Now, as they they do this, the religious leaders are kind of befuddled. They they don't really know what to do because on the one hand, they they really desperately want the apostles to stop talking about Jesus. And yet at the same time, uh, public opinion is certainly in the apostles' favor. So the religious leaders decide, hey, we're just going to to threaten these guys and then we're going to release them. And, And that's what happens in the first 22 verses All that that ends up with is the apostles being threatened, and then they are released. Now, as we're going to see in next week in chapter 5, the apostles won't get off so easy when they're arrested the next time. In fact, the persecution against the church is just getting started here in chapter 4, and we're going to see how it's amped up greatly in the weeks ahead. However, before Luke further details this persecution, here at the end of chapter 4, he provides a great deal of insight into a couple of things, a couple we might call features of the church that enabled it to grow so rapidly despite this persecution. I read one source this week that said that the church may have been as large as 20,000 at this point. So, so get this, the church in just a matter of months went from 120 to tens of thousands. And while here in chapter four, as he does Throughout Acts, Luke gives the credit for this to the Holy Spirit. Luke says that the Holy Spirit, he shows the Holy Spirit is the source of this growth. He also emphasizes two features of the church that enables this exponential expansion. These features are prayer and community. Prayer and community. We see the church praying in verses 23 through 31 of chapter 4 and the church living in community in verses 32 through 37. Let's start with verses 23 through 31. Follow along with me now as I read. Luke says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. This is uh, Psalm 2 now. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So when Peter and John are released, they immediately go and report to the rest of the church what the religious leaders have said to them. And when the church hears about these threats, what do they immediately do? What is their first response? I want you to say it with me, ready? What do they do? They, they pray, they pray. And what do they pray for? Do they pray for a change in circumstances? Do they pray uh, that God will smite their persecutors? Do they pray that this persecution will go away? No, no. Instead, they pray for boldness and witnessing about Jesus. Look at verse 29, again, they say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So get this, boldness is what has got them into this mess, and now they're praying for more boldness. Now, I want us to consider uh, this morning for a moment how we might respond if a couple of our leaders were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel about Jesus. Might we take a little different tact than the church does here? Might we kind of go to them and say, hey, you know what, you need to kind of tone it down a little bit. Might we encourage them to, and, and say, you know, um, maybe it would be better if, if you didn't talk so much about Jesus being the only way. Well, we maybe advise them that, that why, don't, why don't you just talk about some things that are not so controversial? Why don't you talk about things like Parenting? And you talk about things like um, you know, how to take care of your finances and, and how to get out of debt, how to have good self-esteem and, and how to live your best life now. Why don't you talk about those things because we don't want any more trouble. Will we take that approach or will we take the approach of the early church? Would we, like them, pray for more boldness so that, honestly, we could get ourselves in more trouble? Now, let's consider, though, why the early church is praying for boldness. Why are they praying for boldness? I believe there's at least three reasons. First, they believe in God's sovereignty. Note the church begins their prayer by calling God the sovereign, the Lord. The Lord who made everything. The Lord who not only through David predicted the death of Jesus in Psalm chapter 2, but then also use sinful people to bring it about and accomplish salvation through it. You see, the church here recognizes that while sinful people were responsible for the death of Jesus, it was God who had sovereignly used their sin to bring his purposes about. We actually see this. Throughout the first four chapters of Acts, repeatedly it's pointed out to us. Luke makes mention of the fact that that everything that's that's happening here, particularly in regards to the death of Jesus, was directed by the sovereign hand of God. Now, let me make clear: let me make it clear, the church here isn't saying that God was responsible for Jesus' death, but rather that he used the choices of sinful human beings to accomplish the salvation that he had planned from the beginning of time. And so in faith in this, the church is praying for boldness in order that they might play their part in God's plan, their part in being witnesses about Jesus and therefore the means that God uses to bring people to himself. You know, people will often ask if if God is sovereign, then what's the point in praying? If God's going to do whatever he wants, what does it matter whether or not I pray? Well, friends, we have to understand that, yes, God's going to accomplish all he has purposed. But we also have to understand that he ordains not only the ends, but also the means. And one of the means that God has ordained is prayer. God's chosen to work in this world through the prayers of his people. Maybe I could put it another way. God's sovereignty should motivate us to pray. God's control over all things should compel us to pray, knowing that if we do, there is great hope that he'll use his sovereignty to answer our prayers, specifically our prayers for boldness in witnessing. And that leads to this the church prays for boldness because, second, they understand their mission and the role that prayer plays in it. Very simply, the church in Acts is absolutely clear about their purpose. They know why they exist. They know that they exist to be witnesses about Jesus. What's more, they know that if they're gonna be successful in this, they have to pray. That's why here in chapter four and in the rest of Acts, we rarely see the church praying for a change in circumstances. And we almost never see them praying for protection. And we certainly never see them praying for stuff, for material possessions, for wealth, for for things of comfort. Instead, they pray almost exclusively for power, for boldness, for effectiveness in witness. I think there's a huge challenge for us in this. At least I know there is for me. I don't know about you, but I find that all too often my prayers are self-centered. You know what I'm talking about? I pray for different circumstances. I pray for stuff. I pray for, really, let's just call it comfort. And while none of these things is necessarily wrong to pray for, as John Piper points out, This is why prayer often malfunctions. He says that prayer often malfunctions because prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission, but we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Now, Piper kind of uses outdated uh, language here, so, so let me give you the 21st century version. Our prayers often malfunction because prayer is primarily a wartime smartphone for the mission, but we try to use it to text upstairs for comforts in the man cave. Now, maybe you think that that's kind of outdated as well, so I'll let you contextualize it for yourself, all right? So maybe you put in there a post or snap or, or whatever, all right? But the point is, is that prayer isn't primarily about providing us with comfort. It's primarily with providing us with power for the mission. Now, let me take you to John chapter 15 for a second. Really important verse. John chapter 15 and verse 16. Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, "'You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you "'that you should go and bear fruit "'and that your fruit should abide.'" so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, the, the, the way that this is worded in English makes it a little hard to understand the logic of what Jesus is saying here. But basically what he's telling his disciples is that the Father has given them prayer because Jesus has given them a mission. Did you get that? The Father has given his disciples Prayer because Jesus has given them a mission. Jesus has appointed his disciples to bear fruit, and that's why the Father has given them prayer, so that in praying they might be given the power to accomplish their mission of fruit bearing. Prayer is how followers of Jesus accomplish the mission he has given them, and it's clear that the first Christians readily understood this. I wonder today, do we readily understand this? Well, let's put John 15 back up here for a second, okay? Because I want to bring this to bear on us just for a moment here. Believer, you need to realize that you are a believer not because you chose Jesus, but because he chose you. He chose you. And he chose you very specifically because he he has a mission for you. And that mission is fruit-bearing, And the way that you are going to accomplish the mission that Jesus chose you for is through praying. You get power for the mission through prayer. The third reason the church prays for boldness might surprise you. They do so because they're fearful. In verse 29, they ask God to look upon the religious leaders' threats which means they're shaken by those threats. I mean, you only pray for boldness, right, if you're scared, if you're worried, if you're fearful. Now, I'll remind you yet again that these men that are making these threats are the same men who had just crucified Jesus, And so while we don't know the exact content of their threats toward the apostles, we can assume that they at least insinuated that if they didn't stop preaching about Jesus, the same thing that happened to him was going to happen to them. Crucifixion was one of the, is, I guess we should say, one of the the worst and most horrific forms of execution that mankind has ever developed. And these believers, at least Peter and John and the rest of the apostles, had actually watched Jesus be crucified. The other members of the church had certainly heard about it, and they were very familiar with crucifixion. And so as these religious leaders are making these threats, it had to terrify them. So let's not make the mistake of believing that the persecution the Christian in Acts face doesn't affect them. I mean, there's this place in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul tells the Corinthians that he came to them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, I know that's not normally the way that we think of the apostle Paul, but he and the other New Testament Christians struggle with anxiety, worry, and fear, just like you and I do. When they were persecuted, they were shaken just as we are, and that is why they continually pray. So yes, they believed in God's sovereignty, and yes, they understood their mission, but they also knew that they didn't have what it took to accomplish that mission, and so they made prayer a priority. And I want you to look at what the result is here in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Luke says that as the church is praying, the place where they are meeting, where they have gathered is shaken. Think earthquake. Think windows rattling, floor trembling, hinges coming off of the door kind of earthquake, all right? So so the place that they're in is shaken like an earthquake. Now in the Old Testament, an earthquake often accompanies a theophany an appearance of God to man and indicates an answer to prayer. So I think of Moses on Mount Sinai. God comes down to meet with Moses on Mount Sinai and the mountain quakes or Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God. And as he steps in, the threshold shakes, all right? So an earthquake here, this shaking is symbolizing that the God Has come and that he is going to answer their prayer. That's what's happening here. As the church prays for boldness, God shows up, and as a result, they're empowered to continue to boldly witness. In other words, they're shaken by God's presence, and as a result, they become unshakable. They pray for boldness and the Holy Spirit comes and gives them said boldness. Can you see that today? Can you see that in God's word? More important, do you long for that? Do you long to be shaken by God's presence? Do you long for him to make you unshakable? Your circumstances may not be as dangerous as the ones that these believers faced, but they're just as real to you. And therefore, in your fear, anxiety, and worry, pray that God will shake you so that as a result, you may become unshakable in your witness for Jesus. Now, let's take a look at the second feature of the early church Luke emphasizes here in chapter four. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. These verses should sound familiar to us because they're very similar to what Luke records and describes about the church in chapter 2. This being the case, we need to recognize that the Holy Spirit is trying to stress to us here how committed the first Christians were to one another, how living in community was one of the key features of the early church. Luke says in verse 32 that the full number of the believers, so all of them were of one heart and soul. This means they were devoted in their, I'm sorry, this means they were united in devotion to Jesus. And this common devotion to Jesus led them to be devoted to one another. You see, the first Christians didn't separate the relationship with Jesus from the relationship with one another. Once they were saved, they they quickly realized, in the words of High School Musical, that they were all in this together. And yes, I did just quote High School Musical because Um, years ago, my girls watched this all the time. And I just have to tell you, it's still in my head. That dreaded movie is still in my head. I've been permanently scarred by it. Nevertheless, it it does describe the mentality we Christians should have. We're all in this together. And, And by this, I mean we are all, all in with Jesus, which means that we should also be all in with one another. Luke says that for the early church, this meant that they had everything in common. Now remember for, from a few weeks ago, the word common means sharing. The first Christians shared everything with one another. So much so that in verse 34, Luke says that there was not a single person in need in the entire church. Now, I will will again point out that what Luke's describing here is isn't a form of communism. These believers aren't being forced to share with one another. They're doing it voluntarily. They're choosing to be generous with one another. Nobody's making them do it. They're, They're doing it out of the glad generosity of their own hearts. At the same time, though, I also want to point out that what Luke's describing here is the opposite of the individualism that's so pervasive in the church today. It's it's the opposite of the all-too-common attitude among Christians that they don't need the church and the church doesn't need them. Please listen closely here because it's vitally important that we get this. What Luke's describing here in verses 32 through 37 is, is how the church is supposed to work. We're supposed to be a group of people who are interdependent on one another. We know this for two reasons. One, that's what's repeatedly modeled for us in Acts. And two, all the various metaphors used for the church in the New Testament bear this out. Jesus and the apostles repeatedly call the church a family, a building, and perhaps most significantly, a body. And just like the parts of a family, a building, or a body are interdependent on one another, so too are we. We're all simultaneously needy and needeth. Let me say that again. We are all simultaneously needy and need it. Let me just talk about this a little bit more, all right? Every single one of us is needy, all right? We all need people who are praying for us, who are encouraging us, who are teaching us, who are admonishing us, who are helping to care, uh, carry our burdens. In fact, I wanna say this to you right now. I wanna say it gently and hopefully graciously. But if you don't believe you are needy, what you are actually doing is you are calling God a liar. Calling God a liar. You are actually contradicting God's word, all right? You are needy. And at the same time, though, you are also need it. I run into a lot of people who don't believe they're needed in the church, but but once again, the scriptures tell us the exact opposite. Each and every one of us has a unique mix of gifts and experiences and passions that God has given us, that God has allowed us to experience, all for the purpose of serving in a unique way in the body of Christ. So we're all needy, and yet we're also need it. And that's why we all must have the attitude of the early Christians. We must recognize that the resources that we have, whatever they may be, have been given to us by God for the good of others. I want you to look at verse 32 again. All right, Luke says that the full number, right? You see that there? The full number, that means all of the believers, All right, the full number of those who have believed were of one heart and soul. And as a result, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. See, here's how the, the early Christians looked at it. And they said, Jesus has generously given himself for me. So now I'm going to generously give myself for others. Can I just tell you this? One of the ways that you can know whether or not you've truly come to believe the gospel is whether or not you are generous to other Christians. And I'm not just talking about being financially generous. I'm talking about being generous in every way. Generous with your talents, your time, your words, your everything. In light of how Jesus has generally given everything for us, we should generously give everything for one another. Re- remember 2 Corinthians 8:9. If you've been at Harmony anytime at all, you know I, I quote this verse all the time, but it, it's so key uh, for us to understand the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, you, know, you remember Jesus who, although he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that you out of his poverty might become rich. Friends, we are rich and we're rich because Jesus has been generous to us. And now, because he's been generous to us and he has given us great wealth, we should be generous to one another. Now, as I say, All of this, I realize that many of you have had experiences in the church that make it very, very difficult, perhaps even for you to consider what I've just been talking about, what what we see here in in Acts chapter 4. In fact, some of you are watching online right now and, and you haven't been in a church facility for a long, long time. Maybe even if you have, it's only been occasionally or it's just kind of been reluctantly or tentatively. And so I want to let you know, I get that and I understand that. You, You very well may have wounds from past experiences in and with the church. And you need to know that I not only sympathize with you, but I empathize with you. And I empathize with you because I have had many, many difficult and painful experiences of my own in and with the church. Let me tell you this morning a little bit more of my story. I kind of went back and forth as to whether or not I was going to do this. uh, But I decided to to go forward and I hope it will, will be very helpful to you today. In a couple of months, I'm going to complete my 25th year in ministry. I know it really looks like I'm hardly any older than 25, but believe it or not, I'm almost double that. And in my 25 years in ministry, I've served at three different churches and in two different Christian schools. And I can honestly tell you that in four of the five of these Christian, if you wanna call them institutions or whatever, ministries, I've had very, very painful and difficult situations and things happen to me. Now, and I'm not just saying this, Harmony actually is the exception there, all right? It's been great for me to be here. In fact, in all the ministries I've been, I've had a lot of blessings, and that's particularly been true in Harmony, but in a majority of them, in fact, in almost all of them, there's also been some incredibly difficult and painful experiences. Listen, I once moved my family from Florida to Indiana in pursuit of my, what I believe, dream job, dream ministry assignment. Now, I know you're thinking, who in the world moves their family from Florida to Indiana? But for me, it's never really been about the place. It's been about what I believe to be God's calling on my life, so um, even I and and Landry was just actually she was like seven or eight months old. We moved from Florida uh, to Indiana so that I could take what I believed to be my dream job. I was looking like this is the rest of my life. I can't wait to get into it. However, within a few months of being in this dream job, this dream position, the dream actually turned into a nightmare at the hands of other believers. I will describe everything that happened to you, but but it actually came largely at the hands of people who had actually been my high school teachers, and one of them was one who was actually a spiritual mentor of mine. And this all eventually turned into, at the end of that year, being essentially forced out of the job. So here I am, 26 years of age, married, have a toddler, have a baby on the way, and I have no job. Pursuit of this dream that God had called me to and at the hands of believers, it was absolutely crushed. And I wish I could tell you that this was the only story that I have of how Christians have hurt me, but unfortunately it's not, it's not. And yet, and this is solely by God's grace, I've stuck it out. I've not given up on the church. What's more, here I am today urging you not to give up on the church. Even more, I'm not only urging you not to give up on the church, I'm trying to to, to challenge you and and, and to, to just plead with you to devote yourself to the church. Why am I doing so? Well, it really all comes down to what Luke tells us in verse 33, where he says that great grace was upon them all. You see, while the church can be a place where there's plenty of hurt, it's also a place where there's even more grace. Yes, the church is messy. There's no doubt about that. The church is messy, and of course the church is messy because all of us are messy, right? We're all a mess, and because we're all a mess, we make a messy church. I've told you before, if you you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you will mess it up. So we are a messy church, but get this, we're also God's church. God's church that he has blessed and that he continues to bless, especially as we pursue community and mission. Did you get that? God's blessed his church, but he continues to bless his church, especially as we give ourselves to community and mission. That's that's what the, the church in Acts did. That's why they received so much grace. They experienced so much grace. It's because they, they gave themselves to one another and to the mission that Jesus had given them. Here's how John MacArthur puts it. He says that a church characterized by loving unity and evangelistic zeal receives God's blessing. I know that giving yourself to the church can be hard. I know it can be painful. I know that it can, and frankly, it will be messy. But brothers and sisters, that's life in a fallen world. Life in a fallen world, it's hard, it's painful, it's difficult, it's messy. And inside the church, we're, we're not immune to that. We're, we're still sinful people. We're still in the process of being made like Jesus. We're not there yet, and we're not even close, all right? However, as Christians, there are also incredible blessings. There's also abundant grace. And all of this, get this, all of this is experienced within the body life of the church. It's experienced as we pursue community and mission and as we do it together. So Harmony, let's strive to be a worshiping community on mission. Let's worship, let's witness, and let's do it together. I know that this pandemic kind of makes it hard to do that, but again, it looks like the pandemic is coming to a close. And so, as it does, and we begin to gather again, I, I just, I want to, I'm really, again, I'll plead and I just will urge you let's devote ourselves, let's commit ourselves more than ever to worshiping, to witnessing, and to do it together. Let's pray.